to Nehemiah chapter 9. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, I would encourage you, the blue books in the pews in front of you are Bibles, and they're the same translation I'll be reading from. Um, Here at College Street, we just go through books of the Bible together, um, which will be in the book of Nehemiah all the way through Thanksgiving. And I have yet to pick what book we're going to be starting in the new year, so uh, I know you guys are all on the edge of your seats waiting to find out. But uh, it's from the new, it'll be from the New Testament, so I can, you can eliminate 39 of the books, so it still leaves a lot of room. But Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah is in the Old Testament, and as I was doing Bible study on Thursday with, uh, I'm having such a hard time finding Nehemiah this morning, I don't know why. Ezra, Nehemiah, there it is, okay. Uh, I was doing Bible study Thursday night with a college student, and we've been going through 2 Thessalonians together, and we were in chapter 1, and it just so happened that on this evening there was only one student there, and we came to this verse, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And I looked this young man in the eye and I just asked the question, what is eternal destruction? And it was a sobering moment, honestly, for both of us as we had this very intimate conversation about the wrath of the Lord Jesus against everyone who does not obey the gospel in this life. And it reminded me of another conversation that I had only a week before with another international student uh, who had told me that the conservative Christians in his home country were the ones who were always judging other people. You are wrong. You're a sinner. You're wicked. God's going to punish you. Apparently, this isn't a uniquely American problem. Even Christians internationally have an issue with coming off as judgmental with others. Sadly, many of us think it's our job to look down our nose at other people and to wag our fingers and our heads at the culture around us and to pronounce their fate, you are going to hell. How quickly do we forget the day that we trembled before the wrath of God against our sins and we realized in the depths of our hearts, I am going to hell. If God doesn't do something about it. And on that day we threw ourselves on the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus. Now many of us since the day we first repented and believed. Have forgotten something along the way about the humility and the helplessness of that moment. When we threw ourselves at the feet of Jesus. What my friend, this international, was articulating is that so often people in the world only hear from Christians, you are a sinner. When what we ought to be saying is, 
We are sinners. Nehemiah chapter 9 is going to help us solve that problem this morning. The problem specifically is that many of us have a confession problem. We're very good at recognizing and articulating the specific sins of the other people in our lives. And some of us may even have a long list of grievances against the Lord and all the ways we think He's not doing what He ought to be doing. But the thing that many of us struggle to do is to simply tell the truth about ourselves before God and the whole world. So before we read from Nehemiah chapter 9, which is a prayer, um, I'm actually going to give you the two main points of the sermon because I want you to recognize them as we're reading and listening to this prayer together. This morning is all about true confession, and true confession boils down to two things. Telling the truth about the Lord and telling the truth about ourselves. And these are the two truths that we tell. The Lord is faithful, and we are so often unfaithful. The Lord is faithful, and we are so often unfaithful. So let's stand together, and may the prayer of Nehemiah 9 become the prayer of our hearts. Beginning in verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs the Levites stood, Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, uh, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, and the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the hosts of heaven worship you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. And you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, 
and you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. And you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner so they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities, a rich land, and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven and according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest they did evil before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they, tried, when they turned and cried to you you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Which if a person does them, he lives by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. You may be seated. So Nehemiah tells us that on the 24th day of the seventh month 
All the people gathered once more. Not like chapter 8 where they were feasting and celebrating. This time, verse 2 tells us the people separate themselves from all the foreigners around them and they come in feasts and in, in fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And for the first quarter of the day, they hear the law and the next quarter of the day, as they're convicted, they confess their own sins and the sins of their father. If you remember last week, I pointed out the mere act of listening to the preached word of God is in itself an act of worship. Look at verse 3. And they stood in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped their God. So as we think about true confession this morning, I want you to realize we are talking about an act of worship. Confessing our sins. Confessing the truth about God and about ourselves is itself an act of worship. As we confess, we are bowing before Him and we're paying homage and honor and glory and respect that is due to His name. So, two practical thoughts before we begin this morning. Number one, if you don't know how to worship the Lord, which is kind of a nebulous word we use, sometimes we just mean singing by it. We've seen in Nehemiah 8, that it's an act of worship to submit our ears to the preaching of the Word of God. And now in Nehemiah chapter 9, another very practical way you worship the Lord is by confession. So if you're looking for practical ways to worship the Lord, then join in confessing to Him. This is something that we should be doing every morning, every evening, every time that we get together. And then secondly... If you refuse to listen to the Word of God, and if you refuse to confess to Him, I don't know who you are, but you are not worshiping the Lord. So this morning, I want us to be reminded all the way back in chapter 1, when Nehemiah first heard about what was going on and he prayed, and we saw his confession, we learned these two things are the elements of confession, that we tell the truth about the Lord, we tell the truth about ourselves, and these are the two truths. The Lord is faithful, and we are so often unfaithful. Did you hear it in the prayer? It was all over Nehemiah chapter 9. And there are very few places in our modern world where we still use these words faithful and unfaithful. One of the places that even the unchristian will use these words is in the realm of marriage. Right? We talk about being faithful, being unfaithful. People will say he was unfaithful, meaning uh, when a man had an affair. Right? And we even use the word infidelity, which... Uh, It comes from the Latin infidelis, which means not faithful. We use that sometimes as a euphemism for someone committing adultery. But what are we talking about? They're being faithful or unfaithful to what? To the promises that they made on their wedding day, right? To the covenant vows that they made to a certain person. 
You can't be unfaithful to someone unless you've made a promise to them. So faithfulness and unfaithfulness in marriage is judged against the covenant vows that that husband and wife made to one another on that specific day when they were wed. And it's the same way with the Lord and His people. When we're talking about faithfulness or unfaithfulness, it's got to be to some promise that's been made between these two parties. The faithfulness of the Lord and the unfaithfulness of the people are judged against the promise that's been made between them. Have they kept the promise? Have they broken it? And as the people pray, that's where they start. Laying out the vows that were made at the very beginning that brought them into relationship with this Lord who is the creator of heaven and of earth and of the sea and of everything that's in it. This Lord who's worshipped by all the host of heaven, He's the one who came down and made a choice. Verse 7. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. And you found his heart faithful before you and you made with him, there it is, you see it? The covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, and Jebusite, and the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise. So as they begin their prayer of confession, they recognize that creation, all of it, the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them, is just one giant stage for God to demonstrate His Faithfulness. So he selects one man from among all the men that are upon the earth. And he chooses him. And he makes a binding promise, a covenant with him. And he says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give it to your offspring. And the people confess truth number one. You, O Lord, are faithful. They say in verse 8, you have kept your promise. And as they reflect on the past and their history as a people, they see all the ways that God has been faithful to them time and time and time again. 400 years after God made this promise to Abraham, Abraham's offspring, if you know the story in the book of Exodus, they were slaves in Egypt. God hears their cry, and if you know the story, God sends Moses to go say, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, heck no. And so then God sends plague after plague after plague, and finally after the tenth one, Pharaoh lets him go, but then he changes his mind. He chases them into the wilderness. The people cry out again. God splits the Red Sea. They pass through on dry ground, and then as Pharaoh and his army try to follow, he claps them, destroys them with the waters. And then Nehemiah and the people enumerate all the ways that God is faithful to them. He says, first, the Lord is faithful in destroying their enemies. The Lord is faithful in leading them day by day as a pillar of cloud and as a, by night as a pillar of fire, showing them the way they should go. The Lord is faithful in teaching them. He takes them to Mount Sinai. He gives them all of the instructions exactly how they're supposed to follow Him. He's faithful in feeding them. The Lord actually literally sends bread from heaven every day. 
He's faithful in giving them water to drink. He makes it come out of a rock. And then sixthly, he's faithful in keeping his promise. He brings them right up to the edge of the promised land. And he says, just go in. Just step over the Jordan and take hold of what I'm giving you for free. I've done everything I have promised. Now, he says, go in and possess the land that I promised I was going to give you. Over and over again, the people confess the truth. Number one is abundantly obvious. The Lord is faithful, faithful, faithful. And it's at this point that we begin to see point number two. We are so often unfaithful. Look at verse 16 with me. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. What? They're literally standing on the banks of the Jordan looking at the beautiful promised land, hearing reports of how amazing it is. And God has done everything for them up to this point. They've done nothing except experience the continued faithfulness of the Lord. And here He is telling them, just go, just go take possession of this beautiful land that I've prepared for you. I want to give it to you. And as they're standing on the edge, literally admitting to one another how beautiful the land and how good it is, they say, Lord, we know you've delivered us from our enemies. We know you have led us. We know you've instructed us. We know you've fed us. We know you've watered us. We know you've brought us right to the edge of the promised land. But no. We'd rather go back to our slavery in Egypt. And not only that, we're not going to worship you anymore. We fashioned this golden calf. And all the things that you've done for us, we're going to credit this golden cow for. And claim that this thing has really been what's been faithful to us all along. They would rather worship a cow than the Lord. And before you and I get too deep in just wondering to ourselves, how on earth could these people be so dumb, so blind, so unfaithful? Brothers and sisters, true confession reads this and admits the truth. This is us. We are so often unfaithful. How often does the Lord deliver us from our enemies and lead us and teach us and feed us and water us and bring us to the edge of the land and we say thanks but no I'd rather return to my slavery the very thing that the Lord saved me from and went to all this trouble to deliver me from is the thing I voluntarily want to go back to whatever sin that is Pride, lying, sexual immorality, worry, gossip, promise-breaking, hatred, self-centeredness, 
These are the things that I want to go back to. I would rather pretend like my job has given me all these things. I would rather pretend that money really is the thing that is being faithful to me. I would rather worship before the approval of others. And we blind ourselves to the truth. These things are slavery and false gods. We are more faithful how often to our sins and our false gods than we are to the Lord himself who has done so much for us. All these things the people confess in verse 18 are great blasphemies before the righteous and holy God. Blasphemy means provocation. It means sticking up a middle finger to the Lord. It means a justifiable reason for God to, at that very moment, just strike us dead and start over from scratch. Verse 17. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and do not forsake them. It's the kind of verse we expect to read in the New Testament. (laughs) So he brings them to the edge of the land that he promised to give Abraham. And he says, go in and possess the land. And they're unfaithful. And they try their best to go back to Egypt. And even so, verse 19, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light them the way which they should go. The people confessed, even though we were unfaithful, we don't deserve you to continue to do any of these things for us. The Lord continues to be faithful. He continues to lead them. The Lord continues to teach them. He continues to feed them, continues to water them continues to deliver them from their enemies. In fact, verse 21, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. Even as the people, day after day, continue to be unfaithful, the Lord is faithful. For 40 years, He carries them through the wilderness like a half million tantruming babies. If you read the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, you will realize that's what they were every day, throwing a tantrum. And the Lord, for some reason, for 40 years, carries them faithfully. Verse 24 tells us that after those 40 years, He brought them right back to the exact same place back to the banks of the Jordan, back to the edge of the promised land. And this time he brought them all the way in. The people are confessing once more, you have kept your promise. You promised the land to to the offspring of Abraham and you have delivered. No matter how impossible, we made it for you to keep your promise. You've done it. Over and over again, despite the undeserving, stiff-necked, presumptuous nature of the people, the Lord never failed to keep His promise. Brothers and sisters, let us confess the truth 
day after day, He is faithful. And God gave them a garden. God gave them the veritable garden of Eden. Look at verse 25. Can you imagine just being able to stroll in and take possession of this? They captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things. The garage had brand new cars in it and the pantry was stuffed full and it had all kinds of things in the bank account and cisterns they already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. And so they ate and they were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. So they're feasting on all these things that they don't deserve. On the goodness of God, and they become fat at the expense of the faithfulness of the Lord. And what do they do? Verse 26 Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Forty years later, now the sons get a chance. Like father. Like son. It doesn't matter what generation you come from. If you are a human this morning, brothers and sisters, we have to confess the truth about ourselves. We are so unfaithful. How many thousands of ways has the Lord cared for you? How many thousands of prayers across the span of your life has the Lord answered? And you've just forgotten. Ways that He continuously keeps His promises, provides everything that we need, and yet you and I prove to be disobedient, rebellious, stiff-necked, law-breaking, prophet-killing, blaspheming infidels. Utterly unfaithful. As the food that the Lord has provided is still in our mouths and we sit in houses that we don't deserve and we feast on the goodness of the Lord, we blaspheme Him with that very mouth. The one thing that the Lord required of His people when He brought them into the land was them simply to worship Him as the Lord who had done all of this for them. And that was the one thing they were so hell-bent on not doing. They were good at worshiping under, on, on every hill and under every tree. But they were worshiping every God under heaven except the Lord. We have to confess the truth. We are so unfaithful. And verses 27 through 31 is just basically saying, and so on and so forth. Rinse, repeat. Rinse, repeat. The rest of the history of the people of God was a continuous cycle of the Lord proving faithful and the people proving themselves unfaithful. The people would sin. The Lord would give them into the hands of their enemies. They would cry out and He would send a Savior. Verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you and abandoned And you abandoned them into the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times over and over and over again you delivered them according to your mercies. 
Yesterday, I was in our nursery, and I'd just given our one-year-old daughter, Caroline, a bath. And as so often she does, you change her diaper, and she pops up, and she immediately runs out of the room as you're trying to put her jammies on her. And I call out to her, Caroline, come back! Which she just giggles and continues to run away. Well, this time, I'm chasing her out of the nursery with the jammies, and I'm saying, Caroline, come back! And she's laughing, and she runs right into our wooden couch. And immediately she starts crying and she comes running back. And in that moment, I was like, this is exactly how the Lord feels with us. He's calling to us and we're laughing, running away. It's not until we get hurt all of a sudden, we come crying back to him. And in his mercies, he's willing over and over and over again to wrap his merciful, forgiving, compassionate arms around us. And yet still, verse 29, says you warned them over and over again to turn back to your law Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they stubborn, turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. They would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. This is a prayer of true confession. Because it tells the truth about the Lord, that He is faithful. And it tells the sad truth about ourselves. We are so often unfaithful. Well, as we close, three three quick things I want us to realize. Three practical things we can take away from this prayer in Nehemiah. Number one, we need humility. We need humility. If you don't like to admit that you're wrong, that's not just being a man. (laughs) That's not just a, a personality trait. If you have a hard time telling God and admitting before others all of the specific ways that you've sinned and you've done the wrong thing, it's because you're proud. You heard it over and over again. The key word for the people, the reason why they kept disobeying was because they were stiff-necked. Presumptuous. That means they acted proudly. They didn't want to admit the truth about themselves. We think too highly of ourselves And the difference here in Nehemiah chapter 9 is that the people come assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with earth, dust on their own heads. Do you know what that communicates? I am nothing. I am just a ball of clay clothed in rags apart from the Lord. Do you remember Genesis chapter 1? We were made from dust. Apart from the Lord, we are just dust in rags. How proud can a pile of dust really be? Well, but I don't want people to know. 
all the wrong things that I've done. I don't want them to think poorly of me. We need to stop thinking about what people care, how people think of us or, or caring about that and realize that He already knows how lowly we really are. He knows our frame. He knows that we are just dust. You and I are balls of clay and rags that somehow have also managed to offend the Creator of the universe not one time but thousands of times over, deserving His eternal wrath. And you and I cannot find mercy and forgiveness until we're willing to confess the truth about ourselves. I am unfaithful. And Lord, I want to tell you the specific ways, and I don't care who hears it, that I have sinned before you. Will you let your proud heart lead you to an eternal hell? Is it worth it? To protect your reputation before other people. If it keeps you from the forgiveness of a gracious and merciful Lord. Secondly, we need faithful hearts. We need humility before the Lord. We need faithful hearts. There was something different about Abraham. In verse 8. You found his heart faithful before you. And God made his promise to Abraham. The writer of Genesis tells us, Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. That is what is lacking in the people. A heart that is full of faith. All the disobedience, all the sin, all the stiff-necked presumptuousness, all the blaspheming, all the law-breaking is pouring forth from a faithless heart. The people did not believe. So friends, if you see your life and it's full of all these same things, blaspheming, disobedience, law-breaking, ungratefulness, it's because you have a faithless heart. Which brings us lastly to number three. We need more than anything the faithful Lord. That's what I want every single one of you to leave this morning knowing is I need more than anything the faithful Lord. Let me read to you verse 31 one last time. Nevertheless, In your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. When I hear this first ringing in my ears is what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If we are faithless, he remains faithless. Do we believe that this morning? You see, the Lord knew from before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that the only way He was going to be able to keep His promises would be if He did it Himself. (laughs) He could not depend on man. 
If it depended on us in any form or fashion, ultimately his promises would fail. So he sent his righteous son, Jesus, into the world to fulfill every single one of his promises and to prove his faithfulness once and for all on the cross. Jesus proved himself righteous because he kept all of the promises that God had made. He died as the Savior of the world to save all those who would confess the truth. Jesus has been faithful even though day after day I have been faithless. Even if you and I could list off every single sin that we've confessed, that we've committed against the Lord. Even if you and I could see the deepest sins of our darkest hearts and confess those before everyone and God and the world, all the ways we've provoked the Lord to His face and deserve His eternal wrath, the Bible shows us there is always a nevertheless. Nevertheless. You see, the cross is the nevertheless of a gracious Merciful, slow to anger, rich in steadfast love and covenant faithfulness kind of Lord. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, let us begin to practice the act of worship known as true confession. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in the moment that we separate ourselves from the world, not in that we're righteous, but simply we're willing to confess the truth that we're faithless, that we're unfaithful over and over again. And yet, Lord, you have been faithful to us, particularly in Jesus who has died and been raised to save and forgive us. God, we thank you that you are the God of the nevertheless. May we not be afraid to confess, for as we confess our sins, you prove yourself over and over again to be faithful, to forgive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.